Hi. So, um, this is Bioneers, and I'm imagining a lot of you stare up at the sky a lot and think about the cosmic order, right? <laughs> Foregone conclusion, my kind of people. So for the next few minutes, I'd like to just sort of do a visual meditation on this way that we envision the cosmos and how it shapes the way that we relate to the world. And this was really inspired by something that uh, Bucky said one time, kind of inquired, you know, can we think of and state adequately and incisively what we mean by universe? For universe is inferentially the biggest system. If we could start with universe, we would automatically avoid leaving out any strategically critical variables. <laughs> there's, there's some systems thinking for you. <clears throat> so, you know, there, there's this view, I think, um, of what the universe is today that we sometimes don't question often. And for thousands of generations, it was very, very different. People would turn to the dome of the sky and really start to think about the cycles of life, the regenerative capacity, the relationships between the celestial and the terrestrial. And our ancestors' very survival in many ways depended on their ability to correlate these cycles in order to anticipate, synchronize with all of this stuff that was inseparable from lived experience. The world was animated and alive. But about 2,500 years ago, this really radically new view of the cosmos came into being. And this was really essential for the birth of Western civilization. It was actually Plato who first kind of imagined the world from this kind of God's eye view outside of the universe. And it's Timaeus, he was recounting uh, kind of the creation of the world, and he had a, what he called the demiurge. And the demiurge was to him the mind of God. And so he was imagining what it would look like to remove himself with his intellect to be separate from the world. And this became really central to a view that his uh, student Aristotle then developed further. He had uh, these celestial spheres that he imagined that were holding up the stars and the planets. And this became known as the geocentric model of the cosmos. Ptolemy later adopted it. But this was really something that was profoundly influencing the Western imagination for many, many, many years. And then this was actually appropriated by the Catholic and the Protestant churches after the, in the Middle Ages. So God really became seen as this demiurge, this unmoved mover, this creator outside of the sphere of the world. And Aristotle had this idea that Mother Earth was corruptible. I mean, we kind of think about geocentrism as being people were cocky and they thought they were in the middle and they were so naive and they'd see the stars moving around. But really, it was that he envisioned this being the worst place to be. And that the heavens, which were masculine, he saw his father's sky, was this transcendent world that we would go to, either in our minds or at the point of death. And then around 500 years ago, Nicholas Copernicus came along quite famously and suggested that actually, you know, he did some calculations, and he thought that the sun might be at the center. And he felt that he was actually elevating the earth to the status of a planet going around this central fire. And this is a really 
profound move, but not for the reason that we're usually told, because what he actually did was elevate Plato's God's eye view, this sense of us being removed even further in many ways. And this was made famous by this book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, published about 40 years ago, 50 years ago now. And Thomas Kuhn coined the term paradigm shift to actually describe this shift from the geocentric to the heliocentric model of the universe. And we hear about paradigm shifts all the time, but this is actually what he was talking about, this particular movement that started to shake things up in such a way that this model profoundly challenged the intuitive sense that we can trust ourselves. That when we look up at the sky and we see all the stars rotating around, that all of a sudden we had to use our imaginations to think, oh my God, is this completely wrong? Is my intuition about lived experience something that I can no longer trust? The intellect is telling me something that my senses aren't. How do we reconcile this? And this resulted in a number of developments, not the least of which, like when the telescope came along, was discovered shortly after Copernicus, or was invented, that it essentially shattered the celestial spheres. That by being able to see things actually moving in the sky, that Galileo and others realized that the celestial spheres weren't there. This later led Nietzsche's madman to proclaim, God is dead and we've killed him. He was actually talking about the disappearance of the spheres and the heavens above. And this really embedded this profound notion of the mediocrity principle, sometimes called the Copernican principle, in the heart of Western science. And that's that Earth is nowhere special. It's just like everywhere else. The elements here, the physical laws, it's just like everywhere. So therefore, everywhere must be like here. And so we could go anywhere else, and we would find that there is no privileged position from which to observe. This was a space and time was gradually seen as something more than these spheres. They were concretized into kind of mathematical abstractions. And even today, we think of these as absolutes existing independently of lived experience. And the idea of the clockwork universe really took hold as something that eventually we would be able to discern kind of a theory of everything and mechanistically predict everything that was happening in the cosmos. And this really led to a profound sense of separation, even more so than Plato, that Descartes and others, they started to see the mind and the body as separate. But more importantly, it really seemed to affirm the separation of humans and nature and our capacity for the intellect to be outside of the world. And of course, <laughs> reductionism, get it? That, that famous painting by Descartes. Um, we all know kind of what the consequences of this are. So, when we think about science, we think about objectivity. We think that we can have this God's eye view from nowhere, telling us something through our imaginations, through our intellect, that our sense experiences won't necessarily show. And that has really resulted in all of these assumptions leading into these externalities, right? Within the current economic system, we've been able to somehow justify and fragment and reduce things to such a degree that we can ignore the consequences of our actions oftentimes because we still somehow have the sense that we're not really here. And we're dealing with the consequences of this all the time, this mechanistic paradigm of reductionism and abstraction. You know, it was adopted actually in the foundations of neoliberal economics. And so this is how we really ended up with the global system that we've got. And at the same time, at the kind of grounding of the space age about 50 years ago, science fiction visions were really profoundly affecting the way in which we related to the universe. 
This wasn't a mistake. Ladies and gentlemen, here is your host, Walt Disney. Thank you, Garko. In this exciting age, when everyone seems to be talking about the future possibilities of space travel, there's much speculation on what we will discover when we visit other worlds. Will we find planets with only a low form of vegetable life? Or will there be mechanical robots controlled by super-intelligent beings? One of the most fascinating fields of modern science deals with the possibility of life on other planets. This is our story. And indeed, this actually is our story, right? Because how many, this was on ABC in the 1950s, millions of people saw it, and this has really embedded a particular mythos in the way that we think about space. And it worked. I mean, the government worked with Disney. They really wanted to catalyze the American imagination so we could fund the space program. The moonshots happened. It was incredible. It was amazing. It inspired people. And even today, everybody's talking about moonshots as this sort of, you know, the, the, the high point of human achievement. And in a single generation, we've actually managed to go to Mars. But the only hyper-intelligent robots we found there were the ones that we sent, right? And like, not only did they not find those lowly forms of plant life, they didn't find any life at all. If you want to see what an alien world looks like, go to West Virginia. <laughs> Mountaintops are being decimated, right? And instead of dreaming about life on other worlds, we can go to Alberta and check out what's going on with the tar sands. I mean, in a lot of ways, we're actually living on this planet like we actually believe we have somewhere else to go. According to the Global Footprint Network, we're averaging over one and a half Earths. If you can see, USA is number one in some pretty profound ways. And Resilient scientists are even quantifying a lot of things way beyond climate change that we're doing to the planet. I mean, I'm glad Jason was here earlier talking about the good news because there's plenty of this stuff out there. We've got aerosol loading, we've got biodiversity loss, we've got all kinds of changes in land use. So this is really about understanding how we're tipping, what the scientists call tipping towards the unknown, engaged in this high-stakes game of unwittingly crossing these planetary boundaries of the safe operating space of humanity. And given the overwhelming complexity of these problems, it's a little surprise that people would be anxious to find somewhere else to go. You see these headlines all the time now. We have this recent flurry of reports on the hunt for planets outside of our solar system that really seem to feed into these dreams of escape. And some reporters are even going so far as to suggest that astronomers are close to finding Earth 2.0. And this has some other reporters really excited. Now, the astronomers are calling their discovery a Goldilocks planet. Not too cold, not too hot, possibly just right to sustain water and perhaps life. And it's just nice to know that if we screw this place up badly enough, there is some place we can all go. I didn't see him smirking, you know? <laughs> like. <laughs> So I mean, this is undoubtedly exciting news. I love the, Tupler, the Kepler telescope. I love exoplanets. But it's also this kind of prime example of what's going on, how when we claim that planets light years away or close or near Earth, they fail to clarify that they're actually, it would take us hundreds of thousands of years to get there, right? Like longer than humans have been a species. So for the foreseeable future, that's going to be the case. And when I say foreseeable future, I mean like probably hundreds of generations which means the only place that we're ever going to go outside of our solar system is if we don't screw this place up. 
right? Because something rather extraordinary happened on the way to the moon. I'm sure you're all familiar with this image, the famous Earthrise picture, that these photographs from the Apollo astronauts, they radically transform perceptions of our home planet. And the fruits of the space age have actually enabled us to study our home planet in new ways, providing these kind of profound insights by launching all of these satellites so that we can see ourselves. These eyes in the skies are really helping us to gain these more intimate views of the planetary system. We can see the many ways in which we're radically altering Earth's ability to support complex life. These remote sensing satellites are really helping us to visualize these interconnections in new ways. So we can see the dynamics, for instance, in this NASA animation of the dynamics of the ocean and the lands and the atmosphere. And we keep discovering previously invisible interactions that conspire to support life here. Which one of my favorites, Earth's magnetic field, the magnetosphere, it deflects solar winds of the sun and keeps our atmosphere and our oceans in place. And it's because the Earth cooled down fast enough in its evolutionary history so that it could retain this molten core. And we really are finding, as Bucky said, that the whole system truly is more than just the sum of the parts. And nothing has driven this point home more spectacularly than this new cosmic model. This is called the Digital Universe Atlas, funded by NASA, put together at the Hayden Planetarium. It's about $10 billion worth of missions to collect data around the world. Here you see the artificial satellites around the planet, geosynchronous and other forms of orbit. As we start to pull out, we're going to go way faster than the speed of light. A full light second, you see the orbit of the moon, you see the orbit of the planets. We come out to a light hour and start to see the planetary solar system in view. You see the constellations, you're going to see them start to collapse to reveal their true view because it's a 3D atlas of the stars. And as we come out, we're going to see the radio sphere, our radio footprint. We're going to see our home galaxy. We're going to start to see this atlas of all of these other stars. Every point is hundreds of billions of stars to eventually we see the full survey of everything that we've seen so far out to what's called the cosmic microwave background, our cosmic horizon, the edge of what we can see, the light from the earliest universe, our cosmic horizon in time and space. So what's truly amazing about this, and you can go online and watch the long version of it, I just sped it up for time's sake, but the biggest news of our generation hasn't really hit the headlines yet. Earth is at the center of this new cosmic model. Huh? <laughs> like, what? So astronomers call it our observational center because it's inevitably the point from which life emerged and has evolved to be able to imagine the cosmos, right? So wherever you're observing for is going to be your observational center. But what they fail to actually acknowledge, because they're astronomers, they don't study ecology so much, but it's also our ecological center, right? When we return to our senses, we actually find that this is still the only place we've discovered that supports life. We now know that Earth is the only planet in the habitable zone of our own solar system, which the necessary temperatures to support abundant liquid water, the Goldilocks zone. And one might assume that these types of insights into the nature of life would cause a paradigm shift on the scale of the Copernican revolution. But it hasn't yet, because we're still being taught these extremely outdated views of the cosmos. So even this familiar model of our solar, solar system is outdated by centuries. This all looks familiar, right? You all see this in school? But we actually know that the sun isn't static. It's orbiting around the galactic core at about half a million miles an hour, and our planet really is a living spaceship. <laughs> 
that if we pay close attention, we can become attuned to the complex patterns all around us. As Bucky was fond of saying, we really are astronauts. And to paraphrase William Blake, we really can see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower. Infinity is actually there in the palm of your hand, and eternity is in every hour. So Buckminster Fuller didn't actually think that universe could be comprehensively defined, but that we could learn a lot by trying. By discerning the synergistic principles operating within nature, he felt human civilization could be designed from a whole system's perspective to do more and better with less. His tombstone is inscribed with the admonition to call him trim tab, which is a reminder of his primary design metaphor that Jason mentioned earlier. And this is the tiniest rudder on a ship that steers its entire trajectory. They demonstrate kind of relatively small amounts of leverage can produce maximum advantageous change. And for the past six years at the Buckminster Fuller Institute, under the extraordinary watchful eye of Elizabeth Thompson, we've been looking for tangible examples of trim tabs by awarding a yearly $100,000 prize. We put out a call for projects designed to make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation without ecological offense or the disadvantage of anyone. It's good, right? It's my favorite mantra, and it's what Bucky said, was the role of the world game. This was the goal to which we should be aspiring, our collective intention. And what we found is that the world is full of DIY astronauts applying these cosmic principles to take responsibility for this spaceship. And these processes, which you can find on the site ID Index, are really designed for the emergent behaviors of these whole systems so that we can help human civilization become increasingly resilient and regenerative. For instance, Savory, the, the Savory Institute, they were a 2010 winner. They're addressing the literal roots of social and ecological degradation worldwide. They point out that to heal the planet, you've got to heal the soils. So because grasslands around the world are becoming key to economic and food scarcity, excuse me, <laughs> food security as well, that they're rapidly becoming deserts. And their trim tab is really the evolutionary relationship between live, livestock grazing and soil. They've developed this holistic framework called holistic management for managing livestock, mimicking the behaviors of the once vast herds of grazing animals and predators. And through this kind of seemingly counterintuitive approach, and I've been a vegetarian for about 30 years, so this really freaked me out, They've successfully reversed desertification on millions of acres of land around the world, actual pictures. And as an added bonus, these grasslands sequester carbon. And their calculations, if 1% of the 5 billion hectares of global grasslands are holistically managed, it could bring down atmospheric CO2 to pre-industrial levels. The 2000, yeah, it's amazing stuff. So the 2011 winner, Blue Ventures, found a way to dramatically improve the health and economic vitality of poor fishing communities in Madagascar through spontaneous cooperation. In this case, the trim tab was the cycles of octopus sex, right? Octopi are critical for the livelihoods of these communities, but they were in serious decline due to overfishing. And so Blue Ventures worked with them to find out how to give them enough octopi, or give them the rest they needed, the octopi the rest they needed, so that their populations could regenerate. So successful, their strategy is now being emulated by, I think, 100 communities up and down the west coast of Madagascar. And this has created the largest community-protected marine preserve in the Indian Ocean, all without government funding. And of course, as Jason mentioned earlier, <laughs> seriously, like, 
this is the stuff that gets me up in the morning. And this is precisely why the jurors on, uh, on, the, on the Buckminster Fuller Challenge chose the Living Building Challenge last year as our, as our most recent winner. Because by defining the highest possible levels of social and ecological integrity for the built environment, this project is truly facilitating a paradigm shift of moving away from kind of this object-oriented view to an understanding of processes by embodying a view of the cosmos that's truly animated and alive. This project demonstrates how the ultimate trim tab is solving for the patterns and relationships within planetary and cosmic cycles, incorporating architecture, water, energy, health, materials, social equity, aesthetics, to, as they say, embody a visionary path to a restorative future. And all of these projects demonstrate the essence of this latest paradigm shift. And that's that we're collectively remembering that in this universe, nothing is more important than synchronizing with the complex structures, flows, and cycles of this extraordinary planet that we call home. Because the most profound insight of modern science is that every one of us is the universe becoming aware of itself after billions of years of cosmic evolution. You're all something the entire cosmos is doing right now. And the universe matters because we're the universe mattering here on this planet, <laughs> right? And, yeah. Give yourselves a hand. Just <laughs> like, that's quite a feat. I mean, we don't know how often this happens. And though it's tempting to suggest that the return of this Earth-centered cosmic model implies that the Copernican revolution has come full circle, I think it actually signifies the emergence of a higher level of complexity in which science has confirmed that we are not separate from this planet, that we are all indigenous earthlings. By integrating traditional knowledge with modern science, we can actually truly reach for the stars, but ultimately it's up to every single one of us to decide if we're gonna take on the responsibility, particularly the multi-generational responsibility that this realization implies. Because there is one thing absolutely certain, and that's that the universe we design for is the universe we're gonna get. Thanks. <laughs>